Good morning. This morning's convo uh, is a gift to us from six students who are representing the three oral communication classes that are happening on campus this fall. Each class has two speakers who will be talking with us, speaking, and these speakers will be introduced by the professors of each class. So welcome and enjoy. My name is Becky Horst. My class chose two speakers this morning, Seth Gingrich and Angie Noah. Both are first-year students. Both chose to use their This I Believe speeches, which was a manuscript assignment, so they'll both be using manuscripts. Seth's topic is I Believe in Silliness, and Angie's topic is I Believe in Imagination. I think you'll enjoy them both. The great Dr. Seuss once said, Adults are just obsolete children, and the hell with them. But why did he say this? I believe he said this because he believed that, or he believed in the genius of foolishness, the benefits of silliness. He knew that children possessed a special ability that unfortunately most of them lost as they grew older. That is, the ability to be silly. I'm here today to tell you about my optimistic belief that we all can maintain a world of silliness our whole lives long. Being silly to me is, is about letting go, letting go of your worries, your cares, and your ego. You can be silly in all sorts of ways. It's really no science. You just let go and let the child inside of you out. This silliness is a great way to help you relax and relieve stress. Most of you here don't know me very well, or at all, so you won't know this, but I am an expert at being silly. I don't do it too often, and I almost never do it in public, but I usually am able to let myself be really silly at least once a day, and I believe that this is something that everyone should do. According to WashingtonPost.com, 54% of Americans are concerned about this level of stress in their everyday lives. This is a serious problem. The website goes on to say that stress contributes to such life-threatening problems as heart attack, stroke, depression, and infection, not to mention chronic aches and pains. If many of these people with stress could help themselves reduce their stress levels, do you think that they would? Well, unfortunately, the art of being silly is frowned upon by many adults. Being silly is a childish act and a waste of time. Sounds like a stereotypical cartoon villain, doesn't it? But with all the constant responsibilities and worries that adults carry with them, this is how they may sound at the end of the day. Stress can rob people of their happiness and passion for living, but silliness can be the spark needed to bring back a little fire into life. My oldest brother, who is 25 years old, can be very negative. He doesn't deal with stress well, and when he's in a bad mood, everyone knows about it. It bothers me to see him so frustrated and down when I know how capable he is of being happy and alive. There have been many times that I have seen him be in one of his bad moods and thought to myself, I wonder if a little bit of silliness would help him out. Let's say we're at the dinner table. I open up with a joke or two about Star Trek and tell a funny story from my day. Eventually, my brother catches on to my good, light-hearted mood and makes a joke of his own. Not caring at all about how dumb I look or how s stupid I sound, I respond with a loud, carefree laugh and go on to joke around with somebody else at the table. And the jokes, they don't have to be clever or witty. Just by letting the child out from inside of me, I'm able to relieve tension in me and in others. The silliness is contagious, and the once quiet and dark dinner table is now warm and alive. 
I often, and sometimes consciously, make myself silly because, or for the purpose of making my day or the day of another better. All right, so silly, being silly won't always make you happy and fix all of your problems. I know that, but I know through experience that silliness is an effective tool in relieving stress and enlightening your mood. After all, being silly is really about being young at heart. Dr. Seuss said that adults are obsolete children, and the adults he is speaking about are an obsolete form of child because they are unable to look at the world in a carefree, optimistic, and silly way. Fortunately, not all adults are obsolete in this fashion. Dr. Seuss himself is a testament to a life filled with silliness. I know I'm still relatively young, but I'm going to go ahead and say that I plan to be a silly young adult, a silly middle-aged man, and a silly old guy, a silly husband, a silly father, a silly teacher, and a silly friend. Because no one ever complains about being around a silly guy. They're enjoying themselves too much. Albert Einstein, who is recognized as one of the greatest minds of our time, once said, Imagination is more important than knowledge. Knowledge is limited. Imagination encircles the world. I believe in the power of imagination and the necessity to keep it alive as an adult. I believe that with our imagination, we can dream the impossible. And with those dreams, we can make this world a better place. If we learn to embrace our creative natures and allow ourselves to explore outside the realm of logic, we can find ways to open doors we never even knew existed. By using our imagination in everyday situations, we become better problem solvers, more efficient communicators, and we have a generally healthier perspective on life. My childhood was full of imagination. And I think that plays a huge role in my life today. I remember so many wonderful memories from childhood. I remember playing make-believe chocolate factory in the mud puddles of our driveway. I remember rock star on the front porch, tennis rackets in hand. We played Amazon jungle, swinging from vine to vine on the weeping willow in front of our house. But our most favorite game was Grand Canyon. We played Grand Canyon in the ditch beside our house. Along the ditch was the neighbor's house, and there was a row of waist-high bushes. We used the bushes to help us climb along the cliffs. As we climbed our way across the canyon, the rocks slid beneath us. We were a step away from death, and a lot of times we would fall, grasping the bushes for dear life, pretending that our feet were dangling 15,000 feet in the air, when in reality, we were really just lying in the ditch. It wasn't that deep. But there was always someone there to pull you up. Scaling the Grand Canyon was no easy task, but we always managed, and we helped each other through it. Isn't it just like that in life? In college especially? College is hard, and we fall a lot, some of us. Whether it's missing home, a quick approaching deadline and no time to finish, a social disaster, or a combination of them all. Most of us struggle with our own canyons every day. But with the help 
and support of friends and family, we can get back up and try again. We conquer our own Grand Canyons every day. My mom had an art cupboard. We were encouraged to be creative and explore. We made homemade books, paper mache sculptures, paintings, and collages. My sister once even made a robot. The possibilities were limitless. If we thought of something, there was a way to make it happen. I believe this is how we should approach our adult lives as well. John F. Kennedy once said, the problems of the world cannot possibly be solved by skeptics or cynics whose horizons are limited by the obvious realities. We need people who can dream of the things that never were. Imagination or dreaming, whatever you want to call it, it is important to let yourself indulge these ideas. We change the world one dream at a time. If we didn't have imagination, where would this world be? I guarantee you, we wouldn't have computers, electricity, or extra tall ice mochas with whipped cream. I was home to visit about a month ago, and we were looking through my mom's treasure box of old photos, saved schoolwork, and other fun stuff. It was awe-inspiring to see some of the wonderful things that came out of our little minds. I thanked my mom. I thanked her for giving us the opportunity to explore our minds and use ourselves creatively. I believe that because of those opportunities that I had as a child, I have been equipped with the tools I need to handle this, any situation in an imaginative and sufficient manner. I encourage you to take the words of Einstein and Kennedy seriously. As you work on your studies, remember, knowledge is important, but it's not enough. Imagination is what gives a person his edge. So exercise your imagination. Read a book. Develop a hobby. Color in a coloring book. Explore your creative side. Think outside the box. I think you'll find it not only to be relaxing and enjoyable, but you'll find yourself thinking outside of your typical scope. The more you do, the more you are open to finding new ways to do it. Break the patterns, take the risks, you'll thank yourself. Good morning, I'm Rachel Lapp. I'm teaching one of the sections of Oral Com, and I'm about to introduce to you two speakers whose speeches I believe are very memorable. And I know of which I speak. Um, I remember in 1991, a very long time ago, when I was a freshman, I had a colloquium that was Oral Com, and I can still remember speeches from that class. I remember Sharla King talking about corporal punishment and its benefits. Um, I remember Tammy talking about the rituals surrounding grieving and death and how that's important for family members. I talked about binge drinking and social responsibility and read a poem that I really regret saying out loud to this day. Um, but hopefully many of us have uh, opportunities throughout our lives, throughout our college careers to be able to continue to grow as speakers and to reflect on what was effective and what wasn't. So. Memorable speeches. Uh, I have Tim Showalter and Dan Adams representing the class today. 
Tim Showalter is from Harrisonburg, Virginia, and he's a Bible, religion, and philosophy major, women's studies minor, which I think is a wonderful combination, and he'll be speaking on postmodernism. Then Dan Adams, Spanish major, English minor from Lancaster, PA, is going to speak about tattoos. Um, both of these topics, I think, are wonderful to speak about in terms of beliefs and values, and these two people have written very lyrical essays that I appreciate very much and look forward to hearing again. So please welcome Tim and then Dan. I don't like Grey's Anatomy. I haven't managed to embrace Facebook. I can't bring myself to call our coffee shop the junk. I'm not persuaded that India and Africa are the only places in the world that inspire good memoirs. I generally balk at trends, except I like fixed gear bikes and I believe in postmodern sensibilities. The story of humanity, says the modern, is the historical progression from something horrendous, remember our barbaric ancestors, to something laudable, imagine human dignity for everyone. The story of humanity, says the postmodern, is the creative tension of both horrendous and laudable happenings throughout history. And remember along with the postmodern, the dissenting voices that lost out to the Augustines, Machiavellis, and Luthers of history. Postmodern philosophy identifies truth in individual experiences and dethrones certainty. It allows the Susan B. Anthony's who say that women's experience might be different than men's could be right. It supports the possibility that Columbus's conquest of America might also have been a discovery. A postmodern person has to admit that Jerry Falwell might speak truth from his own experience but they don't have to claim it as their own. Our lives are stories. They are strings of events, yes, but they are more than that. What I do tomorrow depends on what I do today. And in a broader sense, who you are right now depends on who your grandmother was in the 30s. What is true within my own story, say that same-sex oriented people did not directly inspire the events of 9-11, may not be true in, say, Jerry Falwell's case. Postmodern thinkers do think some things are truer than others, and they certainly all have dif uh, different criteria for judging, but the thrust of postmodernity is that there is no certainty. I believe in postmodern sensibilities and thus uncertainty because they inspire the dialogue that is necessary to constructively rewrite our life stories. If you think Christopher Columbus was mostly a conqueror, you might want to have a conversation with someone who thinks he was mostly a discoverer. But your conversation will be the most constructive if you accept your own uncertainty. Your understanding, just like your conversation partners, has been shaped by certain truths in your own life. You have heard Amerindians talk about their ancestors' experiences and your partner has heard her grandmother tell stories about her European ancestors' experiences. I believe in postmodernity because it complicates things. I believe that life is more complex than the American dream, Martin King's dream becoming a nightmare, or my own dreams of liberation. Postmodernity gives me the courage to describe life through its complexities illustrated in terms of dreams, and then to deaden the poetry in the next line by explanation. I can be a vegetarian and eat sausage once a year at the MCC relief sale because I really like their sausage. 
I can understand voting as a fundamental responsibility of citizenship, but believe that my obsessively political friend should abstain for a few years. I can open a speech by saying that I hate the trendy features of our day and continue to give nothing but praises to a trendy feature of our day. I believe in postmodern sensibilities because they complicate things. They undercut our ideas that we have everything figured out, and they liberate us. I'm freer when I can remember that my grandfather is racist because of his own story growing up in the South, but repeat publicly that he is indeed racist. I'm freer because admitting the complexity of my life story, I enable myself to reshape it. My grandpa's xenophobia is part of my story. Naming that truth, however, does not bind me to his fear, but pushes me toward a different, more truthful understanding of my own position within the world. One turn in my story is from a racist past toward a less racist future. The turn for me came when I realized my own uncertainty while discovering firsthand experiences of racial minorities. I believe that postmodernity liberates us. I'm thankful for my life story. I'm thankful for the hope that it will continue to be written in new and liberating ways. I appreciate Columbus as a conqueror and a discoverer because it instigates good conversation. I like my grandfather, and I like that our stories have interacted but are ultimately not the same. And I like sausage. And I hope that soon I will find a way to eat meat conscientiously, and vegetables too for that matter, talk with my grandparents about marginalized people, and reconsider other truths of our history books. And for these hopes, and for the joy in your hopes being in some ways the same and in some ways different, I thank the postmodern struggle. I believe in tattoos. People who get tattoos, real tattoos, can't lie to themselves. A tattoo that's more than the sum of the ink, words and images that are its parts, one that means a lot to its owner, is a proof that they have something in their life that won't change as long as they look at that tattoo. It is a marker that the person has experienced something that has changed them forever, <clears throat> has marked them in ink. Whatever it is that made that person get that tattoo, they'll remember it forever. And that's something that's worth respecting. Maybe this belief is a bit antiquated. People, get, people today get tattoos for all kinds of reasons. It's not the social taboo it was 15, 20 years ago. But I still, think that, I still like to think that most people get tattoos for a reason. And I mean something more than it just being cool or cute. Especially people who get a ton of tattoos or tattoos in really obvious places. To have that much self-confidence, to know that fully what has shaped you and changed you right after it happened is something to be proud of. Important tattoos are almost as important as the events that spawn them because you're forcing yourself to remember that event for the rest of your life. An event that might be forgotten or get muddled together with other foggy memories will change completely into a bolt of sunlight through that fog for the rest of your life. Tattoos are beautiful. They're permanent in a way that most other art isn't. If you don't like a painting in your house after a few years, you can take it down, replace it. If you don't like a song, you can change the radio station. If you paint something and don't like the way a certain piece of it came out, you can paint over it or start over. If you write a song but don't like the lyrics, you can keep writing or start over. But once you get a tattoo, there's nothing you can do. It's there for the rest of your life. Now, there are machines that can remove tattoos, but you still know it's there. There's a shadow of that tattoo, that memory still on your skin. That permanence is a very beautiful thing. It means you're absolutely sure of something in your life. 
Maybe the way you think about it will change, or the feelings attached to it, but that event will always stay in your mind, a shaft of light through the rest of your foggy memories. It will always remain clear, sharp, like ink on skin. Maybe that's why I find tattoos so fascinating, so powerful. The contrast between skin and ink, soft and hard. It reflects the memory of the event so well. If something happens to me that warrants a tattoo, both will stand out in contrast to the rest of me. The memory of that experience will stand out forever in my mind as something very important. And the visual reminder on me will stand out against the rest of my skin as something permanent, something important enough to warrant marking that memory on my skin. It's such a contrast, that sharp, strong art form for such a fragile muse. It's bold. Bold to assume that you know once something happens whether it will shape you for the rest of your life or not. Bold to assume that you're going to appreciate that experience enough to remember it forever. Bold to assume that you respect it enough to grant it permanence not only in your mind but on your body. And it's bold to assume that anyone else will see the merit in that memory enough to respect your decision. Other art forms have an easier way of it. Music matches the muse of memory very well. They're both quite fleeting. One might even say fragmentary in their representation of time. They're very fickle. One day something might resound in every bit of you and the next sound is empty as a tin can hitting the ground. Music is momentary. It's constrained to minutes and seconds just like the memories that created them. But I think that a good song and a tattoo both belie the same aspects of the memories that caused them. Both require a memory that needs more than just remembering. It cries out to be taken care of, to be loved as actively as possible in song, paint, words, or ink. Both require determination and a desire to keep that memory alive. It can't just be the memory trying to stay alive. You have to want it to. You need to want to remember this. Enough to do something about it. Enough to get it written on your skin for the rest of your life. For me, this is the real staying power of twos, tattoos, the heart and soul of them. That combining of wanting, needing to remember, and willingness to never forget. That sharp contrast between soft, soft skin and hard needle. The knowledge that this is something that wants to stay with me for the rest of my life, and I want it to just as badly. I don't have any tattoos. I know where I want to get tattoos, but I don't know what I want yet. Last summer, I almost went out and got one because I thought it didn't really matter what I got so much as where I got it. But I never went through with it. And now, finally, I know why. I don't have the memories I need to get one. I don't have a memory that wants to hold on to me as much as I want to hold on to it. I know that soon I will have something that holds on to me as much as I grab on it, but I'm not there yet. Maybe I just don't know what's changing me. Maybe it's too gradual a process right now. It's hard to distinguish changes when they're really slow. But I do know that one of these days, a memory of mine is going to grab me and let me know it wants to be remembered. It wants to be seen. It wants to breathe fresh air and live on my skin with me for the rest of our lives. Our final two speeches this morning come from students who are in the oral communication colloquium class. Uh, Anna Yoder will be presenting first, and then Thomas Kirkton. A word about Thomas's speech. At the beginning of the year, one of the requirements was for all the students to present a very short speech on the gift that they bring to Goshen College. There is a myth out there sometimes that students come to college and are filled with knowledge. Um, however, in The Gift I Bring, students were invited to think about what they already bring to Goshen College. So listen for Anna and then Thomas. It began at my own dinner table. I remember as a child, sitting for seemingly endless hours, 
in staring confrontation with a then cold and decidedly ominous heap of uneaten vegetables on my plate. I'd push them here and spread them out there, contemplating my chances for weaseling out of their inevitable ingestion. Eat your peas, people are starving in China. I would have been more than happy to send those peas anywhere but into my own stomach. Later, as both student and teacher, I knew well the familiar after-lunch scene in almost any school. Lunch trays stacked askew, pounds of untouched, wasted food being scraped mindlessly and methodically into large institutional garbage cans. Day after day, year after year, school after school, the pattern was predictable. Yet as a teacher in a small Vermont school with only 78 kindergarten through sixth grade students, the significance of this problem didn't really affect me until one day several years ago when I ran across an article pub published by the World Hunger Project. 40,000 children, the article said, were dying each day from hunger and hunger-related diseases. That's an excerpt from an article called Tackling World Hunger in an Elementary School in the Educational Leadership Journal. And indeed, like the article said, 42,000 children die every single day from hunger and hunger-related disease. Many of you may have heard some of these statistics. Every single day in our world, 3.6, every 3.6 seconds, one person dies from hunger. And yet, it would only take 13 billion US dollars to cover the hunger and health, health and nutrition costs of our world's poor. That's the amount of money that the United States and Europe spend on perfume each year. Additionally, the US and Europe spend $13 billion on pet food. So when you think about it, we could feed the world two times over. Instead, though, we waste much of our food. According to the United Nations World Food Program, wasted food in the United States could feed every hungry person in Africa. As a nation, we throw away 25% of our food, which equals 25.9 million tons, 30 billion US dollars of waste. As responsible world citizens, we must be aware of the food that we consume and the food that we are wasting. If we can switch to the next graph here, you can see that this shows the calories per day, per person, um, the averages on different continents in the world. You can see that North America is almost at 3,600 calories per person per day. Um, Europe and Central Asia follows, and the world average is much lower than that, while Africa is even lower. And then the next graph after that, notice that the countries in red consume 3,500 calories per person per day, while the countries in yellow consume less than 2,000 calories per person per day. You can see the huge discrepancy that we face. And all this goes on while 850 million people in our world go hungry. The reality is that as we consume more food, we take it from the people who need it the most. 
According to Bread for the World, we do have enough food resources in our world to feed everyone. The problem is not the amount of food. The problem is the distribution. There are numerous ways to work at this. I hinted at one in my introduction when I read the excerpt from that article. That teacher from Vermont began an initiative in their local community where businesses sponsored the school for every day the cafeteria wasted less than one pound of food. The money that they raised was then donated to UNICEF, the United Nations Children's Fund. We can be responsible world citizens, and indeed we have that responsibility as people who consume more food than the average person in our world. We can take the food on our plates that we need, and we can eat the food that we put on our plates. We can think twice before throwing away food in the cafeteria every day. So I'd like to end with that challenge. Will each of us today be aware of the food that we consume, or will we choose to throw away the food on our plates when we go to the cafeteria to eat? Thank you. Uh, well, I want to tell you a story about my baseball team. My baseball team traveled to Elkhart Central one day. It happened to be the Saturday morning of my senior prom. And it was real early, and so that put me in a bad mood. And we got there, and we were just getting the crap kicked out of us, like 13 to nothing, or like 15 to nothing, something like that. And on top of that layer of cheesecake, I was 0 for 2 on the day with two strikeouts. And what you never want to do in baseball is strike out three times in a day, because then you shouldn't be playing baseball. And uh, so I was staring that in the face. I was on the quick, fast track to go do it. Uh, my good friend David Zimmer, he was batting before me. He had a double, because he's good. And he was staying on second base, and I was walking up to the plate, and I was, you know, I was bummed. I was, uh, I struck out twice. Come on. Come on, Thomas. You can do it. You can do it. So I stepped up. And I look out, and I try to act like I was cool, not scared. And the pitcher's looking, and he smiled at me, you know. So I did something real stupid. Like, I gave him the stink. I was, you know, just to scare him a little bit, you know. Let him see that meant business, you know. But then he got real serious. All right. So here, you know, the pitcher, strike! I didn't even see the ball, you know. It's like 95 miles an hour. Uh, probably not. I mean, it's high school, so. So I stepped back in, I was thinking, oh, here we go again. You know, here the next week, ah, strike two! That almost hit me. You know, curveball, you know, spinner, slider, you know, spoon right down the middle of the plate, and strike number two. And uh, so there we go. One more pitch, probably, and I'll never play baseball again. <laughs> you know, so uh, here we go, you know. By some miracle, he threw three balls in a row. So, yeah, full count. You know, three balls and two strikes, and I was like, oh, all right, I got a chance here, you know. I hadn't touched the ball all day, you know. Three quick pitches, my last at bat, and I was out, you know. So I was just thinking, try and foul tip, you know, ground out maybe. At least something hit the ball, you know. So I stepped in, and here comes the pitcher, and he unleashed a rocket this time. I, oh, I don't, I don't even know, and I swung, you know. I don't know how I hit it, but I did, yeah. 
I, I had my eyes shut, so I don't really know how that worked. <laughs> but, but I hit it, and I, you know, threw my bat haphazardly on the ground, and I started running, you know, real hard, and I rounded first, and I could hear the crowd roaring like, ah, woo, to go Thomas, woo! And I looked up, and the ball was over the fence, you know, and I tried to keep a straight face, you know, because you got to act like you do it every day. And so, I, you know, I eased into my home run jog like I'd done it before, and I rounded third, and I saw my buddies at home. You know, they weren't real celebrating because we were losing real bad, but, you know, I got a couple high fives, and everyone's back in the dugout. But uh, when asked about the gift that I bring to Goshen College, I thought about that, and, you know, I think the gift that I bring to Goshen College is baseball. Thanks.